first on film and entertainment. And boy, is Mamma Mia the musical entertaining. I just saw the show opening night, Friday night. Princess Theatre, boy, the vibe. That was the castle, of course. The vibe, though, was stupendous. Greg King, Peter Krause, here to join me. Let's talk a little bit about Mamma Mia. Now, you guys may not have seen the musical, or have you? Greg, maybe? You? No, I've not seen the movies. Ah, okay. 2008 Meryl Streep stands out. Amanda Seyfried was... Well, they, they were the two female leads, and... There are lots of other big names in the cast as well. Wonderful. Pierce Brosnan. Yes, indeed. What What do you remember most about the musical? What do you What did you like about it? I mean, this this is a show that you can really savor as a live event. Three D in front of you, the human beings. It was just wonderful at the Princess Theatre. Outstanding. But yeah, you mentioned um, Pierce Brosnan. Stellan Skarsgård was in the movie. Colin Firth, Julie Walters just some of the names that roll off the tongue. So it's it sort of ABBA is what stands out to me. What about you, Greg? Uh, the song, basically, yeah. I mean, 22 of them in the musical. And, Peter, it's a long time back, 15 years ago, that you saw the film, but uh, did it did it resonate or not with you? Uh, to some extent it did. It was, uh, I thought, clever insofar as it was knitting together uh, a number of ABBA songs into a narrative, and I thought that worked reasonably well. Yeah, very well. In fact, the British writer of this is Catherine Johnson, and I thought she'd done a really, really good job because she was she worked on both the film and also the musical, or the musical first and then then on the film. But, you know, it's really Benny Anderson and Bjorn Ulvaeus. They're, they're the musical and lyrical stars of the piece and of course ABBA as, as a whole and gee it's um Princess Theatre again has been transformed since Harry Potter played there um, that that was a very long run interrupted of course by COVID but uh it was there was a sense of anticipation you get them with all the big musicals I've got to say but this one in particular because we we know all of the tunes it is wonderful when you enter the theatre and I, I went back it was Originally in Australia in 2001, 9th of June, and, and it played across four years to more than 2.2 million people in eight cities across four countries. And that was New Zealand, Hong Kong, Singapore, as well as throughout Australia. So not every state, but yeah, as I say, eight. So that makes it, what, five cities at that time. So let, let me go into a little bit of detail for those people who perhaps have never seen Mamma Mia. There, there must be one or two, Greg who perhaps haven't gone along. So I've got 20-year-old Sophie Sheridan, about to marry the man of her dreams, whose name is Sky. And this is set on a fictitious, idyllic Greek island called Kalokairi. K-A-L-O-K-A-I-R-I. Yeah, Kalokairi. I'll eventually get it right. So basically, Donna owns and operates a taverna on this island, and Sophie would would like to invite her father to the wedding. Obviously, the idea of walking her down the aisle by the dad resonates with her. But as her mother has never revealed his name and doesn't speak about him, Sophie has no idea who he is. She discovers her mum's old diary, that, and, and that points to three men about whom Donna wrote fondly 21 years ago. So the, the diary is from 1979, so you move on 20 years from then and you get to the year 2000. So that's kind of when this is all set. 
So without telling anyone, including her mother or her fiancé, Sophie decides to invite each of the three men mentioned to her nuptials at the behest of her mum. So basically the invitations go out from her mum. But mum, of course, doesn't know that they've been sent out. So along come Sam Carmichael, Bill Austin and Harry Bright. And hijinks abound. And the lead up to the big day also involves two of Donna's fellow singers from decades back when they performed as Donna and the Dynamites. Mm-hmm. So that that's the plot. It, it's a really uplifting experience. It's such a positive, just a positive atmosphere throughout. The music is sensational. Money, money, money. Thank you for the music. Chick- Chickatita, Dancing Queen, Lay All Your Love On Me, Super Trooper, Gimme, Gimme, Gimme A Man After Midnight. Some of the songs in the first act. SOS, Does Your Mother Know, Knowing Me, Knowing You, The Winner Takes It All, Take a Chance On Me. I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. Mm. There we go. Some from the second act. And the three-song encore is also a beauty. So plenty, a plethora of highlights uh, as the scenes have emotional resonance, buoyed by a really enthusiastic and talented cast. Whenever he opens his mouth, Harry, the, the Brit, is a real crowd pleaser. There's the boys in flippers. They're a sight for sore eyes, as is the girl group in onesies singing Super Trooper. In fact, the musical high points continue to mount as the show unfolds. Often sultry-voiced Elise McCann, she's ripper. She really is as the consummate entertainer as well. She plays the mother Donna. Sarah, now I'm going to try and pronounce her name, and I apologise if I've got this wrong. Sarah Crindesia, her pure vocalisation, her dynamism, endear her as Sophie and there's a lot of humour in the script that that's brought to the fore by Sophie's three dads and Donna's two bandmates and their collective musical prowess was not lost on me either Martin Cruz is the architect Sam Drew Livingston as the charming banker Harry and Tim Wright as the intrepid traveller Bill and Bianca Bruce she excels as Rosie and Dione Zanotto revels in her role as the man-eater Tanya who's gone through at least, well, three husbands that uh, we know about. Donna's got a couple of employees, Etuate Latui as Eddie and Jordan Tom Lenovich as Pepper, and they make most of their time in the spotlight as well. Both are highly engaging. Show features no shortage of corny but butte one-liners, and apart from the strength in the individual performances that I just mentioned, the chorus numbers really delight. The, the ensemble and the band are terrific. The choreography is magnificent. The set design, I thought, was simple but effective, and it's what I'm familiar with in terms of the primarily the taverna, but uh, there's also other scenes on the beach, etc. And the lighting and the sound, they really do elevate the spectacle. I thought the lighting was terrific. So Mamma Me, the musical, absolute joy, ear-pleasing, mood lifter, continues to resonate. Audience is going to love it. Princess Theatre until the 10th of December. So plenty of opportunity over the next nine weeks to see it. But Friday night was one of the best opening nights that Melbourne has seen. It was really an excellent night at the theatre. There you go, Greg. Does it? Do I entice you a little bit? I hope not. Really, not really. No. Why? Why? What? What would no, prevent? If I can't have seen it, I would have seen it when it was out originally years ago. So, you, the, what? You you're not into the romanticism of it, or what? I'm not. A, I was never a big fan of Abbott's music, anyway. Oh, okay. I was. I. What about you, Peter? I mean, all you do is you you spend your life in dark places. So I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not. Well, I, maybe music does qualify. You know, do, do you? 
Do you do you ever listen to music or do you not? Oh, sometimes, but I'm not uh, a huge music fan overall. Uh, and ABBA doesn't do it for you? Uh, it, it's pleasant enough music, but it, no, there's nothing oh. that really... We uh, love... My, my wife and I went to the island where there's the ABBA Museum in Sweden, and we had a great time. We were singing along and recording our voices. My voice is terrible, but hers is very good. And, uh, yeah, we still remember that experience. It was one of the highlights of our trip. So we were... I, I was an ABBA fan when the music came out, even though it was not necessarily the right, not the right thing, sorry, that's the wrong word to use. It wasn't uh, cool necessarily to be so. I didn't care. I loved it, and I've loved it ever since. And, boy, have they done well. So, funnily enough, I'm seeing Chess, which also features Benny and Bjorn's music on some... I'm seeing it uh, this afternoon, yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of ABBA going around at the moment. And, of course, there's talk about... Bringing the ABBA show that's in London, the uh, what are the, what are, what are the projections called? I've gone blank, but uh, bringing that show to either Australia or New Zealand, and we're in a bit of a a bun fight with um, the Kiwis and also with Sydney to see whether Melbourne's going to stage that show. Would love it to be because um, I think we're we're actually in danger of because Sydney's really come up in the world and they're well and truly competing with us for the big musicals. They've got more stages now than they did have. I reckon it's time we built another theatre in Melbourne CBD, Greg. What do you reckon? Is it, there's, there's such where, an appetite. Where would you put it, Alec? Where would we put it? We'd probably tear down a few buildings, not not the historic ones. I I, I really, I just think there's, it, it's interesting. If you go to London, if you go to New York, there are so many opportunities that there is, people are going to these shows. That There is a re, real desire to see more. And it's limited by space. And at times we want to stage something, we want to bid for it, but we we don't have a place to put it. So that makes it kind of difficult. Anyway, I'm a real enthusiast, as you can tell. Now, I want to talk about a movie called The Exorcist Believer. 50 years ago, when The Exorcist came out, I mean, it was the first horror film nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. I think it was nominated for, for 10 Oscars at the time, if I'm not wrong. And it rewrote the rule book on scares. It was genuinely frightening. Did When you saw it, what was your immediate impression, Peter, when you saw the, the original Exorcist? Oh, I was very impressed because it uh, it, it, it was such a head-turning experience for me. And uh, I thought... Yeah, very it was pretty brilliantly done with uh, a sort of in-camera special effects. Hmm. Well, I mean, you were just a young man then. You are only about 35. So, uh, you know... <laughs> who, at the time, it must have left an indelible impression. What about you? What about you, Greg? Well, I, I was when it first came out. I was too young to see see it. Um, well, you know, I rated, but I had read the book. Um, so, and when I finally got around to seeing the film, yeah, it lived up to the book. Um, it was quite scary. The moody cinematography, um, the special effects which were done in camera, there were quite exciting. And yeah, it was a scary film. Um, yeah, that, that near Omen were the two scariest films I saw in the in the seventies. Absolutely, yeah, very, very good, good references to to both, of course. Uh, so, look, this one, The Exorcist Believer, which is MA rated, and uh, it could well, I couldn't get what the actual running time was. I thought it was two hours and one minute. Then I looked at the Australian uh, the, the website that supposedly tells you all these things, and it said one hundred and eleven minutes. Do either of you know what the, the truth of the matter is? Yes, IMDb definitely says it's 111 minutes. 111? 
Okay. Yes. It yeah. was it was put down originally when I saw it on IMDb at 121. Hmm. Or maybe maybe the I, village, I the village the village website says it's 100, 111 minutes as well. Okay. So maybe maybe I can't read my my twos from my ones. Is that that's probably the truth there. There, uh, maybe I'm getting uh, beyond being able to read words on a page. Who knows? I, I, all I can say is it's near on two hour, two hours. I, I, I thought this one felt longer than the original to me. That's the first comment. Did that? Did it do the same for you or not, Peter? Not particularly. No. Okay, fair enough. Um, well, look, I, what I would say about it is that I, I thought the first one was terrific. I this was a pale imitation. It wasn't quite the imitation, but yeah, it it could have been better. I thought this started out well though, and it basically started out in fine and colourful style in in Haiti, and that was where a pregnant uh, woman uh, called Seren Fielding, played by Tracy Graves, and her photographer husband Victor Leslie Odom Jr. a holiday, and then all hell breaks loose. We cut to thirteen years later. Yeah, it's a it's a long time. Thirteen years later, and Victor's left to raise their daughter Angela, played by Lydia Jewett, on her own, on his own rather, not her own. Um, they they appear to have a, a positive relationship, no question about that. Uh, and um, her mother, this is uh, Angela's mother, features strongly in her daughter's thinking. And Angela asks her father whether she can spend the night with a school friend called Catherine. And when she does, the pair disappears into the woods only for Catherine to try to help Angela channel her mother with disastrous consequences. The girls disappear and they receive police assistance. I'm talking about Victor and then Catherine's God-fearing parents, Miranda and Tony. Miranda played by Jennifer Nettles and Tony by Norbert Lebutz. But there's a, a search, a desperate search for her, which is mounted when their disappearance is reported to the cops. The the families are understandably relieved when three days later the girls turn up, but that relief quickly turns to shock and then fear. Angela and Catherine, they're no longer the happy-go-lucky children they were. Rather, they're vessels for demons that have possessed them both. And at first, Victor won't hear of it, turning to the conventional medicine for answers, simply... You know, let's take her to the hospital and let's get the treatment. But what he witnesses is truly terrifying. At desperate times, they call for desperate measures. A neighbour and nurse endowed at the hospital where Angela's receiving treatment gives Victor a copy of the book written by Chris McNeil. And that this this is um, the, the role that revives Ellen Burstyn. And her daughter, Reagan, or Regan, played by Linda Blair, was possessed 50 years ago. And, of course, as I say, that references back to the original Exorcist. Even McNeil, though, is unable to turn the tide against this new evil. And a, a non-church-endorsed exorcism is arranged. So that there's your plot. That's the relationship between this and five decades ago. Directed and co-written with Peter Sattler by David Gordon Green. He, he's responsible for a couple of other horror films, Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends. Look, I appreciated the setup. I thought the background of the darkness that envelops this piece was well done in Haiti, no problems. But thereafter, it seemed to, for me to take ages to ignite, to get to where it was inevitably heading. And I recognise the running time is similar to the original, but 
this franchise reboot is stretched beyond acceptances. The exorcism to me, it's laughable. It's a, it's an elongated carry on. Overall, I found there were two few jump out of your seat moments. And while the makeup was effective, I thought the acting was largely pedestrian. I mean, the father, which started out pretty well, he becomes a sort of a, he does, he just this vacuous individual. I mean, it, it's strange to me that, that that metamorphosis, it didn't really work uh, as far as I was concerned. And the truth is I, I just didn't buy what they were trying so hard to sell with this movie. I did appreciate the references to The Exorcist, which were, which was groundbreaking, of course, at the time. But that won't mean much to those who didn't see it who were going to be potentially attracted to The Exorcist Believer. So, I mean, yeah, it's okay, but you're not going to get the full measure of that unless you've seen the original Look, I'm going to say this. I entered the cinema with a bit of hope, but I left disappointed. So, yeah, that that's my take on it. Peter, yours? Well, I must admit, I did approach this 50-year-on uh, sequel uh, to the original William Friedkin film uh, with some trepidation. But I must oh, say, yeah. I was ple- okay. I was pleasantly surprised. I yeah. must say, there've been so many films that have exorcisms as part of their storyline, and most of those were pretty poor, throwaway sorts of films. And so uh, here we go, uh, another variation of uh, a theme that's been done to uh, to death, so to speak, uh, in uh, various films. Anyway, this one I actually I quite appreciated. Not that it's a great film, but it's a good follow-up. Because A, it features Ellen Burstyn, who reprises her character 50 years on. And I thought that was uh, an important part of the storyline. And also that the demon was split into two uh, in terms of uh, impacting on two young girls and and how that uh, can have an impact. I also liked the way that it downplayed the role of the church or the Catholic church. Um, who do get involved, but not to the to a major extent, and it it had more of a contemporary feel to it, um, and of course more special effects uh, rather than using in camera effects. I I I quite liked it overall. I I especially appreciated also Mike Oldfield's uh, tubular bells being uh, resurrected to some uh, impact in the film. And I also appreciated the surprise at the end, which, of course, I won't spoil. Um, I, look, I, overall, I, I thought it was a reasonably good follow-up to The First Exorcist. Okay. Well, yeah, you must have thought more of it than I did because I, yeah, I, 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 I wanted more. And I, I just thought it, that much of the movie was really stretched to, to sort of get to that end point. I know that the original exorcism in the original Exorcist lasted forever. I, I bought into that more than I did this. Did you buy into this? There were so many sort of tricks or they they attempted. Did you buy into this exorcism in, in Exorcist Believer? Uh, I, look, I did. To a, to a general extent, I think it, it was set up very carefully and very well. Uh, and yes, I did buy into it, if you can understand and believe that exorcisms are real. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, you you're going to have true believers and others, and then there, there there are certainly going to be things that you can't explain and uh, where traditional medicine can't provide the answers, I suppose. So you know, they're they're obviously using that as a starting point. And 
and you know why not 50th anniversary good time to to bring out a movie like this so okay let greg you haven't yet seen this one but i haven't seen this one yet no perhaps um we can we can get your thoughts um in in coming next week maybe or the week after depending upon when you see it tell me what your score out of 10 is then peter okay i thought it was okay and i gave it six out of ten well, okay, so for me, I was thinking five, five and a half. So I'm not that far behind you, uh, but I, I suppose that to me, actually, I'd be interested from both of you. I would consider a seven to be a you know decent film without being a world beater, right? A seven's a a pretty reasonable mark. Five is on the cusp of failing, of course. Where where do you see? If, if I mean, like, I'll, I'll give you Oppenheimer, which is my best film of the year and will be I can't see that being beaten quite frankly but I gave that a 10 right now so to give you perspective Exorcist is basically on the border and then uh, there are a number of films I suppose that we've seen that I would would sort of put in the seven category I'll just trying to think of one in recent times uh, films like Retribution or whatever I would have given about that sort of mark to what what would you consider Greg and score out of 10 to be a, a decent film without being a great film, what what mark would you give a decent uh, film? Anything up seven or eight, yeah. Yep. Okay. And Peter? Yeah, I agree. Seven is probably a good benchmark for a higher quality. Good. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. Well, look, let's go from one horror movie to a, another one on J Air eighty eight FM. Saw X. Is it Saw X or Saw Ten? I mean, it's the tenth film in the franchise, isn't it? So Saw Point. That's a Saw Point. Thank you very no, much. No. Very good, Greg. Um, more, more dad jokes, please. That's this is that's the show for it. This is, to the best of my knowledge, 118 minutes in duration, and it runs. I say that because I obviously got the last one wrong. Uh, it's an MA-rated film. Again, I was a bit surprised this wasn't R-rated. Um, boys, what do you what do you think about that? Until and I was. The publicist yeah. said she thought it should have been R-rated because it's pretty gory stuff. Yeah. Yes. So I mean, what are they becoming more liberal at? Uh, at headquarters, what what you know the the people who hand out these things, what what does it take to to get an R rating these days? Oh, mate, maybe we've become just more desensitised to this kind of stuff. Possibly, yeah. Well, look to call it torture porn, I reckon is fair and reasonable, quite frankly. Uh, regardless, the the franchise has built a strong and loyal following since it sliced and diced its way to the public consciousness back in. What nearly twenty years ago, two thousand and four. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can't say I'm an aficionado. In in fact, I've seen very few of the ten Saw films, but I still thought there was something to this latest instalment. The movie, just in case you're thinking, okay, well, you have to have seen the previous nine or whatever, and it's it's sequential. It isn't. It's set between the events of the original Saw and then Saw Two, which came out the following year, two thousand and five, and the Pleasure from Pain, the, the taciturn protagonist, John Kramer, played by Tobin Bell, is diagnosed with a terminal illness, and he's told he has but months to live. As a result, he's willing to try anything for a second chance, and Kramer, whose uh, moniker is Jigsaw, attends a cancer support group. Sometime later, he crosses paths with a man from that group who, surprisingly, appears to be the picture of, of health, and as a result, Kramer's naturally inquisitive. That's when the man details an experimental procedure performed by a controversial European specialist called Dr. Finn Pedersen, uh, a role filled by Donna Gordon. 
And this procedure worked. And as a result, the man is cancer-free. So Kramer's quite intrigued. He does his own research, which leads him to Dr. Pedersen's daughter, Cecilia, played by Sinove Makodi Lund. And she appears to have taken up where her father left off. He, Kramer, pays big money. And the following week, he finds himself in a makeshift clinic in an old warehouse off the grid near Mexico City. And all of this is because it's not an official procedure and they have to be very careful, or that's at least what we're told. Uh, Cecilia, for her part, appears quite warm, empathetic, and basically Kramer then meets members of her team. That includes the driver, Diego, Joshua Akimoto. It's a, an interesting way of being introduced to the procedure, I must say, when he lands in Mexico City, but I won't go into the detail because I don't want to spoil it for people. Also, the team of the um, of, of Cecilia includes Gabriella, Renata Bucker, the, the woman who shyly greets Kramer and, and ensures that he's comfortable during his stay. Medically, there's an anesthesiologist called Matteo Octavio Inorioza and a nurse, Valentina Paulette Hernandez. And Kramer also comes across, when they sort of show him where the procedure is going to be carried out, uh, another patient called Parker Sears, a role filled by Stephen Brand. So, as I say, he's undergoing treatment. Now, Kramer's surgery appears to go quite well. And that the problem is that soon thereafter, he realises that he's been duped because the entire operation was actually a scam and Cecilia struck it rich, defrauding the most vulnerable. So he determines that he'll call to account all those in on the ruse that basically caught him out and uh, got him to spend all this money. A civil engineer and an architect, Jigsaw has been for about 40 years, almost 40 years. So he rounds up all the people who have been involved in this fraud, straps them in for the ride of their lives, literally. In other words, Kramer has designed some complex torture apparatus for the small group involved to try to navigate. And in his twisted belief system, everyone deserves a chance to redeem themselves, if ever so minor. Helping him to do his dirty work is his apprentice, Amanda Young, played by Shawnee Smith, whom he's training to succeed him in his wicked ways. Let me just say there will be blood, there will be guts, there will be limbs flying every which way, which is why I said I'm surprised this has not received a higher rating. Uh, the sickening Morelli play, that's the cornerstone of Saw X, is well developed by the writers Josh Stolberg and Pete Goldfinger. There are twists aplenty, and just as you think the film will labour over a particular thread or run out of steam, it turns tail, and I thought that was commendable. Tension builds, the, the pressure valves constantly turned up as we wait for the next round of bloodletting. Pl plenty of cliches here, Greg. Uh, the, the ghoulish methods of torture, they've got their own creative bent, if you pardon the pun. And then, of course, there are the characters led by the methodical, largely humorless John Kramer. Tobin Bell brings, I thought, a dogmatic menace to that role. And as Kramer protege Amanda Young, Shawnee Smith channels reverence and self-doubt. Conversely, funnily enough, when you look at it in its context, there's self-confidence about Sanovi Makoti Lund as Kramer's potential saviour come adversary Cecilia Pedersen. Look, I was quite invested. I, I was surprised in, in the outcome, which is a sure sign that director Kevin Cretert has his mindset in the right place for what is undoubtedly a selective tastes genre. 
Greg, so X, have you seen all, all 10 or not? Yes, unfortunately I have. And un unfortunately, I thought this was visually and thematically a pretty ugly film, actually. Summit Journey doesn't cover what I thought of this film. Yeah, I haven't seen them all, Greg, so just tell me, in terms of the gore, how did this compare to the others? Was it more gory or the same or less? It seemed to be more gory. I mean, come on, seeing someone, a woman cut off her own leg uh, and buckets of blood at the end there, no. This didn't, this didn't do much for me at all. I thought it's lots of gory, gory moments there, summit churning moments. Um, and the fact that it's shot using a mostly dark and muted colour palette added to a sense of unease there. Um, the director, Kevin Buter, you've mentioned, he's directed a couple in the series, and he certainly knows this dark visual visceral world that Kramer inhabits, um, and he brings a familiarity to this grim world. But one one thing this film tries to do, it features um, Kramer, the Tobin Bell character, as a central character, where in the past he's been sort of that mysterious figure in the background, and as the main protagonist, it attempts to elicit a sense of empathy for him because of what he's gone through there. And I think Bell does a good job here. He brings a soft-spoken, taciturn, urbane quality to performance, but he also imbues the character with a, a nice, sinister air of menace there. But no, this didn't work for me. Uh, I found this pretty disgusting and grotesque and um, another example of gory, gory torture porn that I, I will probably appease the long-term fans, but no, it didn't do anything for me, Alex. So I, I felt like I, I needed to shower afterwards. It's interesting. I mean, again, it's not a pleasant watch. It, it could never be given the genre. But um, having not seen all of them, maybe I appreciated it more. Who knows? What about you, Peter? Have you seen all ten or not? Yes, I have seen them all, and uh, it's interesting the the way that uh, the uh, writers uh, uh, over the years have used torture porn as a justification to seek revenge on people who have committed crimes or or done things that uh, have gone against society, etc. So there's always been a justification for these people being um, uh, kidnapped and, and being put into situations where they are uh, going to live or die, although in most cases they don't live, uh, or at least not with anything intact. <laughs> yeah. and, and, this, and this one, Saw 10, is, is just another uh, example of that. And what the writers have done in this one is to try to make uh, an extra justification that here are people being exploited uh, with cancer treatments um, uh, that are scams, etc. Okay, that's fine. But then, of course, the, um, uh, the situation is that they are then put into circumstances where the revenge or the, the brutality of the torture porn that is part of um, how they're going to learn their evil ways is even worse than what they did in the first place. And that's what I object to these films, that they are seen as justification um, for people who have uh, gone against society. And uh, that revenge sort of aspect that Death Wish and so many other films have dealt with uh, is, is just very spurious and uh, problematic for me. Um, and I also felt that uh, there's some issue behind these films, and that is how did Tobin Bell's character, how did he get the wherewithal, the money, the circumstances and so on to set up these elaborate machines that, uh, that tear the uh, uh, almighty out of people? It, it, there's no possible, uh, no, no real explanation. Yeah. 
I I want a bit of logic in my torture porn. Thank you. So, <laughs> so look, I must say I agree with Greg. I dismiss this film, uh, even though it tries to ameliorate it to some extent in the last uh, third of the film. Uh, it, it certainly does not work for me at all. And um, yes, I was surprised it didn't get an R rating, but then some of the earlier Saw films were also pretty graphic and nasty and violent. So uh, I suppose the censors will see this as being a fantasy and people know that they're not watching real um, what, that violence. Was, that, this whole thing about torture porn worries me a lot, Peter, and, mm. and this is an important topic to discuss. If you're not of sound mind and you mind and you go along and see these movies, are these triggers? I I, I can't help but think they must be. Your view? Well, again, I, I put the argument that psychologists and research have shown that if it's already there within you, in other words, to uh, to commit violence or to commit mm. mayhem, then watching the movie uh, is not going to to do anything more than just. Uh, be part of your own psychological makeup. But so I reckon, I reckon uh, I, I, notwithstanding what you just said, I think it feeds the beast, and and it only, you know, if you project it on onto yourself and you're of that mind, that 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 is deeply concerning for me. I don't know about what about you, Greg? Uh, yeah, I I think you know, uh, violence in cinemas and that doesn't necessarily lead to people committing acts unless you uh, you already got that sort of propensity in you, and it just like them some sort of um, board with you. But, yeah, um, look, I've, I've seen hundreds of violent films, lots of all that kind of stuff. I haven't felt the urge to go out and commit violence. So No, 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 I understand. Or Bellard's there, or I have other ways of um, sort of dealing with it. You, you, you certainly do have your actors who refuse to be in movies like this because they're concerned. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that you guys have heard about that as well. Uh, and that's not everybody, but uh, and look, obviously that there's you, you, where do you where do you get off here? Torture porn is different to violence in movies uh, where where gun guns go off, but I suppose the end result could be exactly the same where people are dying. So where do where does one draw the line? Uh, you you have to sort of I suppose rely on sensors to try and um and uh, give the right rating uh, and deter people of a certain age from getting in but that doesn't mean that uh you know back in the day greg did you ever sneak into an r-rated movie before you were 18 no i couldn't i grew up in a small country town they knew me ah they, oh there you go so they kept you in order what about you peter did you ever sneak into a movie before you you turned of age uh yes i did yes in the 19th century when i was first watching movie. <laughs> no no yeah, no but but, hmm? but i i remember seeing clute for example, at, at the Australia Twin Cinema, and I uh, had only turned 16, So, uh, wow. uh, but I was able to get in. So this was your bad boy parts. Mm. Mm. What other relations, Peter, have you got? Uh, the, 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 uh, the Twin Cinemas you took, was that in Swanson Street? Um, uh, Pond Street, Community Australia Twin Hotel. Oh, right. 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 Very good. Okay. So, look, I think I'm going to be uh, much more generous than you on Saw X. Let's start with you, Greg. Uh, I'm going to give it a very generous four. Oh, my golly. MA rated 118 minutes. Okay, four. Gee, okay. Peter? Um, I Yes, as I said, I didn't like the film much at all. I gave it three out of ten. 
Okay, so we add those up, and what do we get to, Peter? <laughs> seven out of 20. Yes, the seven, and I gave it a seven. So there you go. Wow. What? Yeah, I did. I, I know. Well, again, bear in mind that I haven't seen, I don't know whether I've seen any of them. Maybe I've seen one. I'd have to look back at my notes. And um, so I, I sort of, it's interesting, maybe a fresh approach to this is the best way to appreciate it. And I, I can't say I enjoyed it. It's not the sort of movie, but I suppose I appreciated it for its cinematic shock value and, and the way that it was um, was put together. So, all right, let's go from there on Jair to another movie which sort of basically could have been a lot better than it turned out to be. And we're talking about The Creator. Now, this is a long film. This is M-rated in 133 minutes, and it is a science fiction action adventure. It poses the question, is artificial intelligence the big bad bogey or is it not? So there's a war going on between humans and robots, perfect, the robots possessing artificial intelligence. Uh, it's not a, exactly a new concept. But at first, we're not sure which side is wearing the black hats and which one the white. So you've got a character called Joshua, played by John David Washington. He is an American Special Forces soldier operating undercover in Asia. And he's deeply in love with his wife, Maya, Gemma Chan, who is a key member of the AI resistance. And as the AI stronghold where they live is targeted and attacked, Maya is blindsided by her husband's revelation. The pair is separated on the ground there. A massive explosion results in Maya's death. So Joshua returns to the United States heartbroken and his life falls apart. Five years later, he's visited by the military brass and urged to return to that war zone. They fear, the military brass, that an AI mastermind known as the Creator has developed an advanced weapon that'll win the war for the East, and it is about to be deployed. They maintain that Joshua is best placed to uncover the architect of the omnipotent device and destroy them and the weapon itself. And the reason? Joshua is the only one with an intimate knowledge of the layout of the land. So Joshua pushes back immediately. But his head is turned after Colonel Gene Howell, played by Alison Janey, reveals to him that Maya may still be alive and living in the war zone. So shortly after he arrives back in Asia, Joshua discovers that the said weapon is a seemingly innocent six-year-old girl named Alfie, the role filled by Madeleine Univoyles, and she's been gifted special powers. So from that point, Joshua begins to question everything he thought about AI, what's real, what isn't, and little by little, he and Alfie bond. It's been co-written by Chris Weitz, directed by Gareth Edwards, and the pair worked together on Rogue One, a Star Wars story. It looks good. Visually, it's um, quite arresting. The cinematography by Greg Fraser, who did Dune and Rogue One and Oren Soffer, uh, and the production design by James Klein, who was responsible for Avatar, is impressive. Another plus, I thought, with a score by dual Oscar winner from Dune and The Lion King, Hans Zimmer. I, I thought that was strong. But for all of the character combinations and permutations that we see, the essence of the creator is its a straightforward story. It does not break new ground. And at nearly two and a quarter hours, it also seems interminably stretched. There are those words again. 
with a number of flat patches, and I, I wanted more than I was expect uh, that that I was not expecting. I I did. I wanted some real surprises, but I did not get them. I, I reckon ninety minutes, ma maybe maximum a hundred, would have been plenty to have gotten through what needed to be said and done in the creator. And look, I'm normally a sucker for emotional connection in movies. This one just didn't resonate with me. My emotions were kept in check. Uh, sure, John David Washington tried hard, put in a decent effort, and Madeleine Unit Voiles came across as this empathetic youngster. But the truth is I wanted to feel and care more about them and their ordeal than I did. There wasn't even a the hint of a welling of tears, which you know, I usually can be moved to. So the potential of the creator was more compelling than its realisation as far as I'm concerned, and that is the two hours and 13 minutes of the creator, which is rated M. Greg, what did you think of it? I actually liked this. I thought it was quite visually well done there. Um, and it's a great way of dealing with AI, who, which has often been seen as a sort of a convenient villain in a lot of sci-fi films. You know, things like um, 2001 and Space Odyssey through to um, Terminator 2 Judgment Day here. Um, and, but he sort of tries to rehab rehabilitate the image of the um, cutting-edge technology here a little bit. But the film is very critical of the American military and its aggressive stance in the world there. You've got allusions to Vietnam, weapons of mass destruction, the invasion of Iraq and all that as well. Um, mm. It shows that, you know, American military at its worst there. Um, I, but I thought this had a film of big ideas, um, a lot of ambition there as well. Beautifully directed by Gareth Edwards there, I think, um, with lots of visual references to films like Blade Runner, Apocalypse Now, and some of those other great touchstones there. Um, but I thought it was let down a little bit by uh, conventional plotting and a bit of a derivative climax that in, overindulges in some of the usual tropes of the war movie and sci-fi genre. But I like John David Washington. I thought he brought gravitas to his role there as Joshua there. And I thought the newcomer... Um, Madeline Voiles is good as Alfie. She has an engaging presence, but she also brings an innocence to her performance there as well. And I thought Alice and Jenny were suitably hard-nosed as Howell, who is a bit of a cliched character. And Ken Watanabe was also good as um, Haran, a leader of the stimulants there. Visually, this is quite an impressive film, I thought. Ale um, Alex and Peter? Yeah, Peter, you, your, your thoughts? Yeah, look, I, I agree with uh, pretty much uh, everything that Greg said. I thought it was a pretty good film insofar as it looked at this fusion between um, uh, artificial intelligence and humanity, uh, obviously down the track, and the whole idea about nations warring about what artificial intelligence is going to do to them. And, of mm -hmm. course, we are having so many arguments about artificial intelligence and having it embodied... Uh, as a child who may or may not be a uh, a hero in insofar as uh, fusing or bringing together the warring factions. I thought that worked pretty well for me. I also, uh, even though it was uh, somewhat derivative, as Greg said, of Blade Runner and some uh, and of those other films, this one had, I thought, a bit more of a touch of humanity to it uh, and and tried to straddle the two sort of areas and and reach a some sort of conclusion where harmony may be able to exist and yes the political aspects are very strongly uh, to the fore because it's a very strongly eastern based film uh, and i saw that a lot of the money mm. to finance the film was yes, from china and from the well. east 
Yeah, yeah. But that's fine. I mean, it's it's good to have different political perspectives, and this one does that. So, look, overall, I, I thought it was a, a pretty good film, uh, wrestling with some difficult issues. Even if it wasn't entirely successful, I think it, it was a pretty good attempt to uh, get audiences thinking about uh, the whole issue of artificial intelligence. Yeah, I, I obviously, again, thought less of this than, than you guys, so it's been a bit of a divisive week in that regard. That doesn't mean that uh, you know different people are going to bring different perspectives to it. Did you not think it could have been significantly better than it turned out to be, given how strong the visuals were, Peter? That notion about a film being better is a difficult one to judge because you have to look at the original screenplay, you have to look at what um, the intentions were and so on. Um, and I like the way that uh, the special effects weren't dominant in the film. It was more of a humanistic story. Um, could it have been better? Uh, I don't know. I, I think it worked pretty well the way it was. All right. Well, Greg, uh, you start us off. What, what's your score out of 10 for the creator? I'm going to give it 7 out of 10. Okay. Uh, fair enough. And what about you, Peter? Exactly the same mark, 7 out of well, 10. For me, who wasn't as satisfied, it's not. I, I'm not far behind you. I'm giving it a six and a half. So, based on what we spoke about earlier in this uh, session, uh, it, it's just under what I'd call a decent film uh, in terms of that six and a half. But it's pretty close to the mark. That's the creator, and you are on Jair eighty eight FM, folks. So, twenty four hours a day, intelligent programming, lots of good music, and hopefully some good times for you. Let's talk about a film that didn't get a preview, and I'm kind of a bit surprised because I, I think it's a, a decent film, and I'm talking about Fair Play, which is MA-rated, 115 minutes, and uh, it's a romantic psychological drama. It enters the world of highly competitive stock market trading. In fact, we've seen a couple of films on the stock market in the last couple of weeks. So Luke, played by Alden Ehrenreich, lives with his and ma is madly in love with Emily, played by Phoebe Dynavor, and he thinks, Luke thinks that he's the luckiest man alive. In the most unlikely of occasions, he actually proposes to her, and she says, yes, if I'm not mistaken, Peter, I think this was at the the wedding of, uh, of uh, was it, who, whose uh, who's sibling was it? His, his brother or something was getting married, and that when, when um, Luke decided to pop the question, is that right? Have I got that correct at the start of the movie? Sounds right. Yeah, fair enough. Now, at that stage, we have no idea what either Luke or Emily are doing for a living, and it turns out that their relationship is under wraps because both of them work as analysts for the same cutthroat hedge fund where inter-office ties are forbidden. Luke is the more senior of the two. He, he's quite keen on getting a promotion. But the big boss of the firm, a guy called Campbell, Eddie Marson, appreciates Emily's decision-making and elevates her above Luke and other analysts in what's a floor pool. So all these analysts sitting on the floor uh, on sort of um, desks, uh, collective desks, so to speak, or desks next to one another, and they're sort of back-to-back -back in a traditional open setting. Make no mistake, Campbell is mercenary as a boss, and, and he makes no bones about it. Those who he believes don't measure up, they're, they're cut without a qualm. So Campbell basically relays the good news to Emily that you know, she's going to be uh, sort of elevated quite significantly. That, that happens at a bar at two in the morning. And the only reason that Emily's there is that her, her immediate superior, a guy called Rory, played by 
Sebastian D'Souza has metaphorically dragged her out of bed next to her partner, Luke. They, of course, don't know that they're having a relationship. The other members of the firm don't. But um, dragged her out of bed metaphorically to ensure that she attends at that bar at two in the morning. Luke isn't exactly enamoured by all of this, and he he wonders if there's more to her promotion than than she's made out when she eventually tells him. But um, Emily tells Luke that she'll help him move up the ladder too. But, but Luke says he wants to do it on his own, on his own steam and, and by his own devices. Truth is that that was never going to happen because Campbell, the big boss, is far from sold on Luke as an employee. Things turn toxic. Emily's wined and dined. Luke, though, is not making any headway. And their relationship, Emily and Luke's, reverts from being highly sexed and mutually satisfying in intellectual ways to being cold, distant and quite volatile. The writer and director is Chloe Dumont, and I, I thought she'd done a decent job drawing us into the mire. The, the role of women, how to get ahead, clearly they're in the spotlight in fair play, which pushes many of the right buttons as far as I'm concerned, and then it stretches friendships with its ending. Romance, though, turns to tension, and that continues to ratchet up. thought the chemistry between Luke and Emily was apparent. They're most agreeable, at, at least at the start of the movie. Aaron Reich... Uh, initially comes across as caring and considered. Dynavor is charming, is warm, and then things change. A badly chosen word here, another there. That's the start of the slide between Luke and Emily. So some support for one another turns to resentment. And at the same time, the portrayal of aggression and abrasive masculinity at the hedge fund, that's well established. There's a, there's a drinks night, for example, at a men's club, which is particularly illuminating. Marzen doesn't need to say much and yet it's clear how ruthless Campbell is, and Marson plays him very well. I did like the juxtaposition of the work and the home environment in which the two key players here, the the couple, Luke and Emily, gravitate. I I thought the juxtaposition worked well, and that includes the early alarm clock wake-ups, the train trips into the office, the the, the screens, the texts, the calls that are grist to the mill at the office. And I I also like the cinematography by Mino Mars. I was not sold, though, on Emily's mother's portrayal, mainly a voice, but we get to see a later Geraldine Somerville plays her in successive phone calls. I, I didn't think there was any authenticity about them. I thought the ending also lacked credibility. It, it went too far, pushed too hard, put Emily in a situation which I don't believe reflected the real world. That aside, though, I, I thought it was quite intriguing. It was an intense cat and mouse game. That is fair play, MA rated and runs for 115 minutes. Peter, your vision of this romantic psychological drama? Uh, it's interesting you say romantic because uh, it, it well, leaves the romanticism. It's romantic. Yeah. I mean, romantic and sexual, I suppose. Yes, yes, but uh, it's it's much more about office politics and gender yeah. politics, mm-hmm. and it reminded me of a film we saw recently, Sanctuary, which was about uh, the interplay between two people uh, and uh, who had power and control, and it's an interesting one in Fair Play because that a similar theme is developed here. Um, and and I thought it worked very well indeed. It's interesting. It it it's a Netflix film, and it was going to go straight to Netflix, but it tested so well that uh, they decided to release it into cinemas for a week uh, mm-hmm. before it went uh, onto the platform. Look, it, it's it's well written, well acted, 
uh, and uh, with lots of twists and turns in terms of the the gender and office politics that uh, the film explores. And I found it also interesting to note that even though it's set in New York or set in uh, the uh, the financial uh, hub of America, it was actually shot in Serbia, which I thought was very interesting indeed. Yeah, it is. It is indeed. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, Greg, did you enjoy it? Sort of, yeah. Um, again, I had a few problems by the end of the film there, but it's a dynamic exploration of power and gender dynamics, um, office politics within the cutthroat, high-pressure environment of the stock market there. I thought Eddie Martin um, was a sleazy quality to his role as Campbell there. He, was, ever. Yeah. He, was, he often does that really well, that sort of sleazy character, slimy. Um, and I thought the cinematography brought a um, gritty colour, the use of a gritty colour palette, sort of added to the um, material a little bit there, um, the high-pressure environment in New York there. I thought there was good chemistry between the two leads there, um, Phoebe Donovan and Alden Ehrenrich there that added to the drama as well. Um, but I wasn't quite convinced by the way it played out at the end. No, exactly. But, at the end, it just left me a little bit, uh, so what? Yeah, well, it's not, it wasn't so much so what. I, I thought realism was lacking and uh, she... She wouldn't have put herself in the situation that she finds herself in, is all I want to say without spoiling it for people. But, okay, what score out of 10? Uh, I'll give it 6 out of 10. 6 out of 10, all right. Peter? Yep, I thought it was pretty good. I gave it 7 out of 10. Yeah, and I gave it a 7 out of 10 as well. So uh, I thought it was, um, again, it's interesting how a film like this tests as well as you you described it. And, uh, the, the um, you know, so Netflix can be changed. Their minds can be changed and... Uh, allow a few weeks in the cinema. So that's fair play, MA rated, and 115 minutes. Folks, we are done. That's, it's all happened. So we're, we're going to have to scoot off into the sunset until next time we do First on Film and Entertainment. Peter, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Always good to talk film. And Gregory, um, it would be even better if we could actually um, talk a bit of football, but that's not for another almost six months. It's very sad, really. Get our, week, get our weekends back, Alex. Oh, no, no. We won another season, my friend. Good on you, folks. Be well, be kind to one another, and we'll catch you next time on First on Film and Entertainment.